While we're in our study of Revelation, we completed chapter one last week in our study of this, uh, this often, and often challenging book. How many have read this book through and when you're done going, what did I just read? <laughs> well, we hope to alleviate that a little bit as we study it. Chapter one introduced us to the writer, John. He, we know about his situation, that he was exiled on an island. We know his, who his recipients are, the seven churches that are gonna get this entire letter, not just the letter to that church, but getting all 22 chapters. And it talks about the author. The author obviously was Jesus. So now Christ tells John to take some dictation, write this down, and we're gonna send this letter to these individual churches, and I'm gonna address each church, Jesus says, according to how they're doing. Now, I think I mentioned this earlier, there's two schools of thought on the seven churches. The first school of thought is each church represents a church in history. In other words, Ephesus would be the church of the apostles. Smyrna would be the church of the, of the persecuted church in centuries after that. Laodicea would represent the apostate church just before Jesus returns. Now, I believe that the Bible, even though these might be representative of those timelines, I believe that every church has existed in every timeline. In other words, there's always been a church in Ephesus all throughout time. There's always been a church of Smyrna all throughout time. And there's always gonna be a, a Laodicea all throughout time. So in history today, in the world today, there's gonna be each of these seven styles of churches. And so when we read these, we have to read them, not only for us as a corporate body, but I believe they're also personal. A church can be in revival, but individuals might not be. So when, the, when he's talking about things in the church, it could also apply to each one of us personally. So as we study them, ask yourself, does this apply to me? So we're gonna start with the first church, which is Ephesus. Revelation chapter two, if you would turn there. I'm gonna pray before we begin because I always need God's wisdom for this. Father, I do thank you that we're able to study your word freely. We're able to gather freely without any kind of fear of persecution. And Lord, as we study your word, I pray your anointing and blessing upon the things that we study. Help me to rightly divide your word, not offering my opinion, Lord, but what does your word truly say? Lord, this is your time. You you take it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I mentioned before, once, now we're in chapter two, but once chapters two and three are done, at that moment we believe that the rapture happens. The beginning of chapter four is once the church is gone and all the things that happen after chapter four are things that are happening without the church and all of us Christians being present. So as we read these letters, again, look in your own life and ask them, ask yourself, is this me? One thing about reading Revelation, you read the horrible things that are coming on the earth during the tribulation. You, sometimes you don't wanna read this book because you know what's coming. But I think as we read it, we understand what is coming and that should give us more incentive to be about God's business. Because whether we're here when the rapture happens or we're gone when the rapture happens, this is, the tribulation is still gonna happen. And there's people that we know that are gonna be in the tribulation unless God saves them. And we want God to do that and we wanna be able to work as much as we can so that when our life is done, either we die or Christ comes back, we've done all that we can to reach people with the gospel of Christ. You think about it, I don't know too many people that I would really want to go through that. Even the people that I don't particularly care for, yeah, I'm not sure I want them to go through that. And you read the news about the, the Taliban and you get kind of incensed, right? You get kind of angry, rightly so. But we remember that Jesus died for them too and they need to get saved too. So, Pray for them, the Bible says, pray for those who persecute you. <laughs> pray for your enemies. So pray for them, and who knows, if they get saved, things can get turned around over there. So 
Pray for them, knowing that persecution, the Bible says, is going to be part of our Christian walk. We watch this TV show called Restaurant Impossible. You ever see that show? It, uh, uh, this restaurant expert guy goes in and tries to turn around a failing restaurant. And I, I thought about that. What, what restaurant have you been to that looked really good from the outside but had the worst meal you ever had? <laughs> On the other hand, this restaurant can look like a dive, but it has awesome food. One of my, on my first job, I worked in a bike store, and there was this little shack of a hot dog place down the road. So we would ride our bikes down and get these hot dogs, and it was just standing room only. You couldn't eat there. You had to eat at the counter or walk out with it, and the place was always packed, always packed. If you're driving by it and you don't know it, you'd never want to eat there. But you, you know the food is good. And the whole point is you, you, you can't tell the quality of the food by how the place looks. I've been to restaurants that look really good, and uh, they're not. In this show that we watch, it looks good from the outside, but when you walk in, not so much. You can't tell the quality or truthfulness of what is being taught in a church by how the church looks as well. Only upon close inspection can you know. When people ask me how to find a good church if they're not, well, I tell them to come here, but if they don't live here, I, I tell them, go find a church that you think you might like, talk to the preacher, ask him two questions. The first question is, do you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God cover to cover? No, no errors. Second question is, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And those are the only two questions you've got to really ask at first. And if they say no to either of those, that's when you shake his hand and say, okay, I'll see you. And you go find the next church. Because no matter how good that church looks on the outside, if they don't believe at least those two things, it's, it's not worth your going there. And this, these letters to these churches are basically God's inspection letters to the churches telling them hey I've been in there I walked through your place and here's some things that are good here's some things you need to fix and you know they go from being really good to really bad and so we're going to start at the first church which is Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands now we mentioned earlier in the in the series that most scholars believe that the seven stars are actually the seven leaders or pastors of those churches that he's writing to. And since there's seven churches and seven letters, he's writing to the leaders of each of these churches. Now, this church, Ephesus, has had some great leaders. Paul was a leader in that church. Timothy was a leader in that church. John, writer of this book, was the leader in that church. So they've had great leaders in this church. Now, I was thinking, it'd be like, Billy Graham starting the church, Franklin Graham coming in as a leader, Charles Stanley coming in after him, and then Max Lucado coming in after him. So this, guy, this church has great history of leaders. But Jesus is telling them, regardless of who the pastor is, who's in control? Jesus is in control. You should never go to a church because of strictly the personality of the preacher because it's easy to get caught up in I don't say idol worship but uh, leader worship the church should be first Jesus second the people third should be the preacher as long as the preacher is preaching the word that's how it should be the minute you get you put someone on a pedestal in a church that's a problem <laughs> because as soon as that guy makes a mistake and he's going to make a mistake and if he's on a pedestal he's going to get knocked off that for you so Jesus is saying hey look you've had a lot of great leaders but remember who's in control of the church I'm in control of the church the lampstand is simply the Lord's presence in the church now it, you, go to a, you go to a preacher's meeting and preachers 
unwillingly or unknowingly say it's my church. No, back at my church. Incorrect. It should be the Lord's church that I'm serving in. And we do hear what God tells us to do. The verse says, I hold the seven leaders of your churches in my hand. In other words, they better be serving me. And I'm in the midst of your meetings. I'm present in the midst of your meetings. In other words, Jesus needs to be in the center of the meeting. Not just talked about, he needs to be here. We sing a song, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I think I said it in the prayer, no, Holy Spirit, you're needed here. You're necessary here. Verse 2 goes on and says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships from my name, and have not grown weary. So what's he do? He goes on to commend their good work. In every letter where there's good works to notice, he notices them first. He always starts with what they're doing right and then goes on to tell them what they need to correct. Every leadership book, every place you work, if there's correcting to be done, they tell you to notice the good stuff first, build a relationship, and then allow the correction to come in. It's a lot easier to receive correction from somebody who you know has your best interests at heart, who really wants to help you, than someone who's just out to correct you. And Jesus makes it a point to say, look, I know you're doing a good job. I'm not making you feel defeated. Here's what you need to correct. These are great things you're doing. Don't, I'm not knocking them. But he goes on to tell them, here's a couple of things I noticed about your church. God's purpose in correcting us is always remedial. In other words, he corrects us to bring us closer, not to push them away. When you correct your kids, it's to let them know they're doing right. right? You, want them to, you want them to get closer to you. You want them to make right decisions. It gives you no pleasure to correct them, but you want them to learn right from wrong. In the old phrase, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And that's a lie. <laughs> Physically, that's a lie. But it, it, most parents take no pleasure in correcting. If you spank, we spanked. You take no pleasure in that. You don't want to spank them, but you know that, that you want them to understand that there is puni- there's consequences for action. If they don't learn it when they're little, they're not going to realize that there are consequences for actions when they're older. And that part of that is, is pain. You want them to know there's pain for bad decisions. Because when they get to be adults, there's going to be pain for bad decisions that they make. So we want them to understand that. And that's what God wants us to do. It gives no, God no pleasure to correct us, but he does it because he wants us to grow and mature. Now, he lists all these things that are admirable traits. He says, you have good deeds. You have hard work. You have perseverance. You don't tolerate wicked men. And when he means that, he's, he's not talking about outsiders. He's talking about people that are in the church that seek to divide the church. And then he goes, you're, you're testing those who you always try to teach us. In other words, you need to be careful about who's, who's teaching, what's being taught. You spot false teachers. And if you read your Bible, even false teachers can do, do, do miracles and do miraculous things. But they're teaching false things. We need to be careful for that. You've endured hardship. In other words, they've suffered for the cause of Christ. And they've not grown weary in all of that. Now, I would like to have that on my resume. <laughs> you did all these great things. Man, that's awesome. You'd get hired at most churches. I'd love for Jesus to say that when I got to heaven. All commendable. Good job, well done, way to be. You would think that's great. Letter can stop right there, right? We're doing everything right. What else can I do? What more does God want? Well, what happens in this church, the church gets into the habit of doing rather than being. Verse 4 says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. How many have heard that phrase before in church work? You forget and you forgot your first love. Well, the Greek used here is willful abandonment or a deliberate giving up of what could include a result of a long neglect. This church was giving the Lord their service. They were doing everything, but they were not doing it from their heart. They were doing it from their head, from habit. 
How many have been to a church where they do everything out of habit, ritual? They do everything right. They do it all, but there's no, there's no meaning behind it. There's no feeling behind it, no emotion behind it. And the word love here is the word agape. They had, been, they had long been a church that responded to God's love for them by pouring out their hearts in love and praise to God. But now, it had gotten to the point where they were just now satisfied with having the right doctrine and doing the right thing. Their actions were not right, were not, while actions, while right, were not rightly motivated. They were busy doing for the Lord, but they lacked any kind of emotion, any love for God, any any kind of relationship with God. They were doing everything because it's always been done before rather than loving what they were doing. I asked the question, how many have experienced that in your own life? Look back. Look back at when you first became a Christian. Are you as excited today as you were then? In my own life, and when I got, and I, I keep looking back to this, I was so excited. When I got saved, man, it was like a light bulb went off, and it, it was awesome. And everything I did, everything was, you know, geared around church, and, and we were buying these pictures of Christian stuff and these statues. We were just going crazy with this stuff because I was really excited about it. As time goes on, if you're not careful, you lose that excitement. And now you, it becomes perfunctory. You just do it because you've always done it. And as Christians, we have to watch that. And think about relationships in your own life. You're getting married. That's going to change things, buddy. (laughs) 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you need to have the same excitement, same zeal that you have today. And as, as I'm sure all of you married couples can attest to, you have to work at that. Otherwise, it just becomes a partnership rather than a relationship. I know, I know people that are, have been married for years, and it is almost a business relationship because there's no, there's no love, there's no feeling. They, they live together, but that's all. My, my mother's parents, I used to say that my mom must have been the second immaculate conception because <laughs> my entire life, my grandparents lived in, in slept in separate beds. If when I was a kid, I'd go over to their house and visit them, separate beds, divided by a TV, and there was just no emotion, nothing. And I thought, wow, how did my mom turn out so normal with this? <laughs> and, it's, and it's easy to do, especially in a relationship where you don't actually see Jesus. It's hard to keep it up, and God says you need to always keep track of where you are it's easy to settle down in your everyday Christian lives and you know you do what you know is right but you've lost the excitement and newness that you had when you first got saved when you couldn't wait to get to church on Sunday to see what God would do man and receive from God now either it's you know if I don't go no big deal if I go I can you know just show up there's a song that I just remembered I can't remember the name of it but it basically, it talks about the person losing their excitement over time. Now you go to church because it's habit rather than expecting God to move. The Bible is basically telling us you need to keep that honeymoon love or attitude and feeling all the time. If married life is just because you've always done them, then their marriage is in trouble. And so it is with a believer. There are churches out there that do everything you know, that the Bible tells them to do, but they don't have any love of Christ in them at all. Their relationship with the Lord is waning if they even have one, but they do, they do it because they've always done it. Verse five says, remember the height from which you have fallen. He wants them to think back to their younger years, what God tells us to do. Remember what happened back then. Sometimes we need, just need to stop and remember how it used to be in our lives. And we're the only ones that can do that. We can't have someone else telling us to do that we have to look back and examine ourselves and be brutally honest with where we are today. How did we live and act then versus how we live and act today? Is it different? 
if we're not as excited and, and, and as zealful as we were before, then the Bible says we need to work on that and get it back. Because verse 5 says, repent and do the things you did at first. Once you recognize the things in our life, once you notice things in your life that you know are a little bit different, that, that need to be changed, the Bible says repent. In other words, turn around. Stop doing what you're doing and do what you did at first. And the Bible says you need to consciously make the choice and physically or mentally make yourselves do what you used to do to get the excitement back. If your personal time with God is waning or non-existent, you need, to, you need to make a choice to correct that. If you don't worship Him like you used to, and I don't mean only here at church and only with music, but you worship God throughout the day. You think about God. The Bible says pray continually. It doesn't mean we're always talking. It means we just have a prayerful attitude and we're always thinking about things of God. The Bible says if you're not doing that, and if this is the only feeding you get on Sundays, you're not going to grow and you're going to lose whatever you had. It's so important that in verse 5 it says, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember the lampstand? Jesus' presence. So he's saying, I'll take my presence out of your place. Kind of harsh, right? If you don't repent, I'm just going to take my presence and go elsewhere. Even though you do all these great things in my name, you, you, you're doing it right. But if you don't return to the way you used to love me and appreciate me and worship me from your heart, I'm not going to be in your presence. And I'm not going to be in your life. Why? Because his presence will have no meaning to us. There's churches that run various programs, but they're not, they're not Bible churches. We can run programs without God. We can have church without God. The question I asked a while ago, if God's presence or the Holy Spirit left our church, would we notice it? That's a scary question. Would you notice it if God's presence left? And the question is, do we want to do that? Do we want to run the program in the church in our lives without the Holy Spirit? And the answer has to be no. Exodus 33. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, God says, but I'm not going to go with you because you are stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. It's God talking to Israel. They've been rebelling. And he says, go ahead to the land without me. I'm not going to go with you. Right? They could have gotten to the land. They could have gotten God's inheritance without God because God says, go. You can have it. I'm not going to go with you. In other words, you can succeed in doing things that you think are right without God's presence. You can do it. But do you want to do it? Exodus 33, 15 says, Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that, we, that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Christians, especially Pentecostal Christians, we should be distinguished from everybody else. Our lives should be guided the programs, the services, our entire life should be guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. When I first started doing Bible college, I used to pray. I would say, Lord, don't make me so good at this that I don't need you. And he, he doesn't. <laughs> because I can tell. I can tell. I'll leave the platform and I'll, I can tell if I was really prayed up enough. And it's, it'll, it'll just fall flat. I remember I did something. I, I was preaching a Sunday night back home and it was just bombing. And I, I didn't spend the time that I needed to spend in it. I didn't pray like I needed to pray. And I come off the platform and one of my friends come up to me and said, so, how do you think that went? And if I can tell, so can everybody else. They, they asked a, a concert pianist, 
said, how often do you practice? And he says, well, I practice seven hours, eight hours a day. And the guy says, what, what if you don't practice? He says, well, if I miss a day, I notice it. If I miss a week, my teacher notices it. If I miss a month, everybody notices it. We don't want to do anything here without the presence of God. Otherwise, we're just a rotary club. We need to have God's presence here. And to do that, we need to make sure that we have a right attitude, a right heart for God. The excitement of newly being saved and the Holy Spirit guiding all that we do should encompass us every Sunday. Man, what's, we used to, you know, come expecting was our tag phrase. Do we come expecting? My wife and I have been really talking about things, uh, you know, healings and stuff like that. Because uh, we, you know, we're debating that stuff. And, uh, and, and she says, do you believe that God heals every time, every place? I said, I don't know. I said, I look at what's happening, but I also look at God's word. And we have to make sure we don't look at what we're looking at as being more important or equal to what God's word says. Because God's word could say something and everything else around us looks different. We can't say, well, that's the way it is because it's, that's the way it is when God's word it says different. So when we pray for things like that, we come expecting God to do things. We come expecting on Sunday morning, we walk in these doors, what is God gonna do today? Man, I need God to show up in a powerful way. And it may not be demonstrative, it may be something that God speaks to you in this service. Through something that we say, something that we sing, something that someone says to you on the way out, that's why it's important we're gathered together. Because God wants to do something in every life. It's not just another meeting. We come walking these doors hungry for what God is gonna do. And that's what he's telling these folks. You're going to church, you don't care. You need to come hungry. You need to come really wanting God to do. How many have ever been in the dead church? A church that you know has no idea what the presence of God is. Or it's even something that they want. I came from one. But ask yourself, do you think that church started that way? I'm going to say no. It's been over the years that the church has allowed the programs and everything they do to overshadow the presence of God. They're able to accomplish things in the natural, so why need God? And a lot of them, since they don't believe that some of the things in the Bible are true for today, they don't seek them. And so if they don't seek them, they don't expect them, and so nothing happens. It just becomes another meeting. Every, you know, every church, Wesley with Methodist Church and uh, Luther with the Lutheran Church and John Knox with the Presbyterian Church, all those started out biblical. And look what happens to a lot of them on the way. I, I read an article, I mentioned this in our meeting yesterday. Harvard University, how many of you, Harvard University was initially started to train preachers and evangelists. That's what their, that was their entire goal. Just recently, they hired a new chaplain. Chaplain. Okay, what do you think of chaplain? This chaplain is an atheist. <laughs> That's like an oxymoron. So you see what happens over time when you don't let the presence of God and your love for God take over. You become enveloped in doing rather than being what God wants you to be. If you remember the book of Ezekiel, the presence of God left the temple and nobody ever knew it. Back at 1 Kings 8, it says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of God filled the temple. Fast forward to Ezekiel 18, 18, or 10, 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. God was leaving because the Israelites no longer recognized, wanted, or needed God's presence anymore. Now, there's one great truth in that. God is more interested in you personally than what you do for him. 
right? Not that your deeds aren't important what you do for God, but he's saying all the works you do are not as important as your relationship with him. Do you love him and do you appreciate him? Are you devoted to him and expect God to do things in your life because you have that relationship? And it's out of that love and devotion for God that gives you the ability and the desire to do the things that God asks you to do. We had our staff meeting yesterday and all the folks that have volunteered and been voluntold to, to help us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. They're there not because of me. They're there because they want to do something because they love God. And they have a burden for whatever ministry they're in. They want to do something to please God. Which means if I'm dead tomorrow, those ministries better keep going on. Because it's not about me. It's about ministering to the people. And if you love God, you're going to do it regardless of who's up front. He goes on in verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, if you go to commentaries on the Nicolaitans, you'll find as many opinions about them as there are commentaries. But the one I find more believable or more common is that the Nicolaitans were the people who were like the religious liberals in those days. They, they were, if you would call them today, on their social agenda, they were more liberal. And we have those today, pastors and Christians who favor abortion, favor gay marriages or other things that are strictly anti-biblical. Not preferences, but anti-biblical. I, I saw a, a short clip about how, this is a preacher, how abortion is a, is a noble thing to do. I'm thinking, man, a day. Now that, that guy is out to lunch. And that's, that's, he's saying, you hate their practices. You hate the social agenda. You hate the liberal part of the church. And he's saying, you know, it's great that you don't like that. But he's also telling them not to allow the love of God to be abused and expressed in a way that God never intended. What's that mean? Do, the deeds you're doing is great. Don't stop doing them. But you need to let the love you once had come more to the forefront and be controlling in what you do. It's okay, you can live, you know. It's easy to let the love of God overpower the, the justice of God. And there's two sides of the same coin. You can't have love without justice. And he's saying, you know, it's great that you don't like those because you love God. But here's the problem. If you let the love of God overshadow everything, then you're going to welcome in everything. In other words, you can live like you want. God loves you. doesn't matter how you live. Yeah, you can live with someone before you get married. God's going to understand. God, because God is love. God knows my heart. How many have said that to yourself? And what's the Bible say about your heart? It's desperately wicked. Who knows it? So when you say, God, I'm following my heart, remember the Bible says your heart is desperately wicked. So we don't follow our heart, we follow what God's word says. I'm not perfect, you know, God will just have to forgive me because God loves me. Well, God will forgive you, and God does love you, but there's also correction and judgment if you keep walking away. Jesus is commending them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but he also, can, he also hates those deeds. We often understand that God hates the sin and loves the sinner, and we, you know, we hear that phrase a lot. And I think you talked about it in class today. Judging someone, the Bible says, you know, that's the favorite verse of everyone else. You know, the, doesn't the Bible say don't judge well, yeah, it means you don't judge the person. It doesn't mean you don't judge the action of the person. It's okay to look at a person and judge their action, not, not the person themselves. In other words, what's the motive behind it? God didn't say, I don't like it. He says, I hate it. 
And it literally means a rightful aversion of what is evil. And the question is, do we hate sin enough? Or do we tolerate a little bit of it? Do we hate it when we sin? Do I hate it when I sin? When I sin against God, do I absolutely despise it? That's what he's saying. So does God. When we sin, God absolutely despises our sin. He loves you, but he despises your sin. Sure, God knows your heart, but he hates your actions. God knows you're not perfect, but he hates sometimes what you're doing. And he all does this to bring us back to himself. Jesus ends the letter with an encouragement and challenge. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, if you have an ear, listen up to what I'm telling you. We know from James, the Bible says not just hearing, hearing involves doing. It's one thing to hear it, but you actually have to do what God's Word says. If we fail to do it, we didn't really hear it. How many of you have kids, you tell them to go clean up the room, and they say, okay. And they go in, and for an hour, they don't do anything. I heard you, Mom. But you didn't clean your room. But I heard you. It doesn't matter if you hear me, you have to do what I'm telling you to do. That's what God's saying. Look, these things are written to encourage you to, to really get your straight. But in order to do that, you've got to do them. Even in the worst case in settings like Laodicea, when Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, he still gives them a chance to get it right. And even though this is addressed to this particular church, churches are made up of people. So he's in effect saying, not just the church and the leadership, but the people in the church also need to listen. That means even if the leaders don't teach it, you are still responsible to do it. In other words, what I'm te- if I'm teaching something that's wrong, I'm going to get judged for that. But it doesn't give you a free pass to say, hey, he taught. Your job is to make sure that what I teach is right. So if you hear it and you obey it, you're judged for that. So it doesn't matter if I teach it or not. If the Bible says do it, Regardless of what the preacher says, you need to do it. God's always willing for us to change. He wants none of you to fail. You have kids, right? You want them all to succeed in their life. You do everything you can to make them the best adult they can be. And sometimes it involves being a nice parent, and sometimes it involves being a not-so-nice parent. If you live long enough, your kids get older enough, you will eventually hear, probably, I don't like you, Mom, or I hate you, Dad. How many have heard that? Because of the choices you make. You do that because you know what it's going to take to make them a better adult and protect them from themselves. I think you talked about that in class today. And no matter how many times your kids fail at something, you help them to do it right the next time. You don't browbeat them when they fail. You encourage them to do it right. Here's how you do it right. That's what God does. He doesn't want any to perish, all to come to repentance, 2 Peter tells us. But he wants everyone to succeed. He wants everyone to have a great life. And he gives us multitudes of chances. The Bible says if we hear those chances and we obey them, you know what's going to happen? We will be overcomers. Verse 7 says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the word for overcomer literally means a victorious conqueror who keeps on conquering. How many have ever been tested once or tempted once and that was it? (laughs) More than likely you're tempted all the time, the same thing. How many know the devil knows your weaknesses? 
He knows your strengths. He knows where you're vulnerable, and he knows where you're not so vulnerable. And so he's going to attempt you in areas that he knows that you struggle with. And he's going to keep doing that. And he's going to keep doing it. The things that you're strong in, you're confident in, he's not going to so much attack those things. But he's going to get you where the things in your life are weak. And the Bible says to, you have to conquer and keep on conquering. In other words, you have to keep on overcoming those things. When I first got saved, I had a really bad mouth and I had drank a lot. God took the language away right away. Praise the Lord. Not so much the drinking. I had to keep fighting that urge. I, I would, I don't know if you, my friends would say I'm an alcoholic, but I, I don't think I was. I just drank a lot. And every time I would go to a buddy's house or a friend's house and they were drinking, I would just be slobbering because I wanted to drink. I had to keep conquering that until eventually God did take that away. But it was something I had to keep on working every single time. And it never gets easier until you finally are able to beat it and God delivers you from that. So if you're falling, get back up. Let the song say, dust yourself off and start again. You keep on conquering. If you fail, you get up and you conquer again. You fail, you get up and conquer again. It indicates a triumphant believer who keeps on winning victories over the world and its wrong desires. How many of you are on social media? Come on, don't lie to me. You're all on social media, right? I'm on social media and I, I try to keep up, you know, church stuff and that. But how many of you know when you start scrolling through, all kinds of weird stuff's going to come up? Facebook or whatever you're scrolling through. They call it clickbait, right? It's something that they want you to click on. And 99% of the time, those things are bad things. But they're always there. You scroll up. No matter how much you ignore them, they're going to keep coming back. We need to keep winning victories over those. And that means you've got to stop going on social media. That's what it means. For those of you who are new have not heard my testimony, one of the things that I had to do as a Christian, I was big into rock and roll music. And I had, you know, back when they had vinyl albums, I had hundreds and hundreds of vinyl albums that I protected like they were my babies. No one ever used them. Each one had an individual plastic wrapper on it. I had what they call at the time half-speed masters and all those things. And they, that was, no one touched that stuff. And all I ever heard before I became a Christian was, you know, you can't listen to rock and roll music as a Christian. I said, well, then forget that. Finally, I got saved, and not long after I got saved, I was reading Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. And God says, okay, time to throw your albums out. And it just happened to be pickup night, garbage night. I'm like, oh, no. And he said, yeah, throw them out. So before I even thought about it, I had to go and I had to pick up all these hundreds of them and put them in boxes and take them to the curb. And for, the, for a long time, I didn't listen to any, any type of music because that for me was a stumbling block. And I, probably 10, 15 years went by before I could actually listen to an old secular song because it, you know, it, it just pulled me in so much. Am I able to listen to it today? To some degree. And I'll know when I've listened to it too much. And I have to turn it off. I overcame it, but it's always going to be a constant battle. And in our lives, things are always going to be a constant battle. The enemy knows what's going to get you, and he's going to keep doing it. And the Bible says we have to keep on overcoming. And what happens after that? He says, to him who overcomes. He didn't say it to those who don't overcome. The overcomers, the guys who keep winning the victory every day, doesn't mean you don't sin. It just means you recognize it, repent, and move on. The overcomers have the right to eat from the tree of life, not those who don't overcome. We either are overcomers or we are overcome by our temptations. 1 John 5, 3 says, 
This is the love for God to obey his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I like the New Living Translation. It says, loving God means keeping his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I ask. He says, that's not difficult. For every child of God defeats this evil by trusting Christ to give him the victory. And the ones who win this battle against the world are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you feel like you're being overcome by the things in the world, in other words, you are beginning to lose your joy, you're beginning to lose your relationship with God. The enemy's trying to overcome you. The Bible says, if you're being overcome by those, it's time to turn back. If you're doing things out of habit and not love, time to turn around. If you no longer have your first love and the excitement and joy, the Bible says today is the day you need to change that. Because what's he say? He who has in your let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've been studying on Wednesday night eternal security versus, you know, you can lose your salvation. And I think a lot of these things in Revelation back up that you can walk away. He says, if you don't overcome, I'm taking the lampstand. If you don't overcome, I'm taking your name out of the book. We want to make sure that we have the right to eat from that tree. We want to make sure that we keep overcoming, not just in things that we do, but in who we are. You know, I'll close with this. They're selling hot dogs out there, so I got to, they asked me if I was going to end early, and I said, yeah, I'm going to end early, and they laughed. I said, you never end early, but I'm going to try to end, oh, a whopping five minutes early. And I said at the beginning, we can, we can examine ourselves to make sure that we have the excitement that we had when we first got saved, and it's only, only each one of us can do that individually. But individually, we have to make the determination that we are or aren't, and then make that change. And I believe that when we commit to make that change, not only you'll be tempted to stop it, but I think the more you press in, the more you read, and the more you pray, God will restore that to you. Because one of the things that happens when you walk away and you start doing things out of habit is you no longer have a devotional time. You no longer have a prayer time. You no longer have time where you worship. All those things are pushed out of your life by all the things that you think you have to do as a Christian. Now, I've said this before and even today. If I don't pray in the morning before I start anything, I'll never have time to do it before the end of the day because all, everything comes up to do. But if I pray in the morning, I'm still able to accomplish what I would have accomplished had I not prayed. Does that make sense? And I think God does that to show you you, can't, you can do it without me, but you do it better with me. Would you stand as we close this morning? Close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. You know, it's easy to assume that everyone who comes to church is a Christian. Those of you who've been here for a while know my story that I was in church for three years. Three services a week, three years, not a Christian. Everybody thought I was because I was a, quote, nice guy. So it's possible to be in a church and be a nice guy and not really have a relationship with Christ. Finally, God, God got my attention. And I think God's trying to get everyone's attention. Because the Bible says he's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been in church all your life. Or you've been in church for many years. And you're a good person, but you don't know Christ. You've never really come to the point where you accepted what Jesus did as payment for your sins, which you justly deserve. And without Jesus, the Bible tells us no matter how good you are, you're not going to make heaven. You're not going to make the rapture. And you will probably wind up in hell if you don't make the rapture. And if you don't get saved during the tribulation, then you definitely will be in hell. 
The Bible tells us that we want to be sure that we're ready. So if you're here today and you've never really, you can't look at a day in your life, you can't point back to a certain time in your life where you gave your life to Christ, then chances might be that you don't know, that you're not sure. And the Bible tells us that these things are written that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. So if that's you and you want to be sure, as the Bible says, you want to be sure you're going to make heaven, you want to be sure that you'll make the rapture, and you want to be sure that you're going to receive the blessings of God in this life and the next, I want you to raise your hand. Father, thank you for those that are present today, and we thank you for those that are watching online. And Lord, I pray as we examine ourselves, the Bible says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. But I believe we can also examine ourselves to, where, to see where we are in the faith. And it's easy to get caught up doing things for you, but not having any love and appreciation while we do it. So Lord, I pray that you would bless each person here, allow them to really be re-energized and be revived in their love and their excitement for the things of God. And I pray that as we leave today, they'll, they'll sense that in, in their presence and they'll sense that on Monday morning and Wednesday afternoon, that excitement and that zeal that you say is always available to us. And the more we study your word, the more we are revived. So Lord, I pray your blessings upon them, encourage them and strengthen them and allow them to experience you answering prayers on their behalf in their lives because you're still a God who hears, you're still a God who answers. We don't have to be in church for that to happen. We can be in our home, praying in our devotional life, and you can do miracles at that point. And that's what we mean by we expect God to show up. So Father, bless us as we leave, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you, enjoy a hot dog on your way out or two or three or five.